Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you're feeling confident within yourself, your nonverbals will be confident. You can really affect how you come across yeah. by how you engage with people, right? Even the untrained person is trying to decode what you're actually saying through your nonverbals. I think that everybody has their own individual persona. Let's bust some myths about lie detection. Yes. Well, that was none other than Susan Constantine. She's one of the world's leading authorities on body language. And this week's interview is for fun and profit. And let me tell you why. There is so much data, so much information available to you that you may not be harvesting every time you're talking to somebody that I want you to be able to harvest. People scream information at us through their body language. And if we know what to look for, you're going to learn how to spot a liar. You're going to learn how to know what somebody's motivations are. And you're going to learn some tricks and traps that you can use to smoke out somebody that's trying to con you, manipulate you, or just flat out lie to you. We're going to talk about ways to catch a liar, the five-second rule, how to protect yourself from investing in the wrong person, and something called cognitive load, something you can impress your friends with tomorrow. But seriously, we're going to talk about when you're really interacting with somebody, what they're telling you without knowing they're telling you. And there are so many channels, they can't control them all. Even after they listen to this podcast, they might be able to control some of them, but ain't nobody smart enough to control them all. So here we go. We'll be back with Susan Constantine in 40 seconds. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. People have just heard me introduce you. You are the best of the best at this, but in your own words, tell people what you do. I'm a body language expert, and what I do is I analyze human behavior. So I'm watching different gestures and, and decoding those meanings and reading your facial expressions of emotions and try to understand what you might be thinking or feeling. And then combining that with your words, what are you saying? What is decoding those words and coming up with, you know, what does that actually mean behind those words? So it's kind of all encompassing. 
Well, let's talk about how people can use that every day because, you know, parents have kids, wives have husbands, husbands have wives, people have bosses, they have coworkers. And what I like to do is give people information where if they listen to us, they listen to you and me here, then they have an edge that other people don't have. Every book I've written, every show I do, every talk I give, I like people to walk away where they have an edge that the dummies who weren't there don't have. So I want people to have an edge by giving them tools that they didn't have before they listened to us talk. Let's give them some tools and things that they can use in their everyday life. People always say that 7% of all communication is nonverbal. That's true at the hello level. But of course, that goes down a lot as you get more data with words and everything. Now the words start to have more power. But still, nonverbals are a huge part of communication, right? Yes, they are. Because reading nonverbal cues is nothing more than your emotions being revealed through your nonverbal movements. So yeah. whatever you're thinking and processing is going to be exhibited through your nonverbal cues, yeah, nonverbal movements. People used to ask me when I was at Courtroom Sciences, can I really read a jury and what they're thinking or feeling at a particular time? And I was like, of course. I mean, it's like they're screaming from the jury box. If you have nothing to do but sit there all day and watch these people and how they respond when the plaintiff's lawyer gets up, how they respond when the defendant's lawyer gets up, when a certain witness is on the stand, and you really read them. First, you get a baseline. Then you see how they depart from that baseline from different people. It's astounding how much information they give you. And then you debrief them after the trial and you find out if you were right or wrong. And they truly are screaming at you non-verbally from the jury box. So it is true. It is true. And the one thing you mentioned, everything is I'm totally in, in uh, sync with that because I also am a, a trial consultant and right. I watch juries. And also what's important mm. is in everyday life is that people are giving these cues off and then people are not picking them up and they're making decisions based on just what they're saying and they're not picking up on those little nuances that gave you such valuable information. And the words you find out that they're in opposition to what their body language was saying. So, so body language, in my opinion, is key to communication. Why do you think some people just don't read the room? People that are maybe talking at dinner or going to a party or something, you see them talking and they just don't read the room. People are rolling their eyes or looking for the bathroom. It's like, how do I get away from this boring son of a... <laughs> and they don't get it. Seriously, how do people not read the room? Yeah. In fact, I was having a conversation with a gentleman that was just in there. We we're talking about most people don't realize is that communication is a lot like violating a ball back and forth playing tennis, which is your favorite yeah. sport. So communication goes back and forth and back and forth. And then all you're doing is listening to uh, uh, this boring person and not picking up that their eyes are rolling back in their head. And it's because they're thinking about something else. They're not tuned in. And you know what I find is that, especially with social media today, that they're not focused on face-to-face -face communication. They're right. down like this all the time. So We're they're getting lazy at it, right? Yes, getting very lazy yeah. at it. If you could tell somebody how to read the room, it should be obvious if people are losing their audience. My personal hell, by the way, is a cocktail party. I mean, <laughs> I would rather get a root canal than go to a cocktail party. Seriously, because making small talk, I absolutely hate it. 
for several reasons. Number one, I do not give a what they're talking about, and I know they don't give a what I'm thinking about or talking about. I'm boring. I don't know why anybody would care about the weather. I don't care if it's snowing or not. And that's terrible for me. And I know that makes me a terrible conversationalist. I just know it does. But some people will get in a conversation and they will stand there and there'll be six people in a circle and one person will do 90% of the talking and not read that these other people are looking at their shoes, looking at the door, looking at their drinks, looking at their watch. People will actually be looking at their watch, and people don't pick up on that. Why is that? Are they that narcissistic? Yeah, that's what exactly what it is. And there's also people that are just attention seekers, right? So they're types of personalities that just, they feed off from all of that excitement. All the attention's got to be on me. Listen to me, because I am so self-important. I have so many important things to say, and then everybody should listen. And they're not noticing that when people are standing around in a circle, that their angles of their body are already faced towards <laughs> the exit sign, or they want to go out the door, right? Yeah. And their faces have become very flat, or they've got that very phony, artificial smile that they're trying to be cordial and shaking their head, yeah. yet they're, they're looking, about, looking around the room just trying to figure out a way to exit out. What do you think are the minimal encouragers that people should look for to tell whether somebody's really interested in what they're talking about? If somebody is really interested in what they're talking about, is they're leaning forward and they have their head tilted and they're mm -hmm. bobbing their head two or three times like, yes, I hear you. Mm -hmm. And they're making really good direct eye contact. It's not a stare, but you find that when people are really interested, mm -hmm. they're leaning in. They're tilting their head. They're in this active listening position. Their body language, their, their, their body language is tilted forward. So they're moving in towards your proximity, into your space because they want more. If they're leaning back or to the side, they're not. If they're leaning to the side, they may be analyzing. If they're leaning back, they're completely disinterested. And you might have noticed the same thing when you're uh, in, in jury selection, right? People that are kind of leaning back and they're analyzing, they're just trying to figure out what's <clears throat> everything's going on. If they're leaning back, you've completely lost them. So facial expressions, we know that movements uh, and within their facial expression are universal compared to millions of other faces across the entire world. Now we're talking about body language. It's not multicultural, it's cultural. So that lean in could be someone that in right. the, within that culture that's considered being their norm. Uh, in certain parts of the country and uh, Asian countries, mm -hmm. you know, that they're more close in proxemics. Others are further away. Uh, looking mm -hmm. at someone in the eye would offend a certain culture. Certain gestures right. also are very off-putting. Let me see what you think about this. You've done this because you do jury work. But when I prepare witnesses, I always try to teach a witness this. And I don't have the research in my head anymore. Maybe you do. And if you do, maybe you'll send them to me. But I always quoted the research that, as sad as it is, we tend to like people that like us. And that's common sense, right? We like people that like us. We don't like people that reject us. We like people that accept us, because our number one need in life is acceptance. Our number one fear is rejection. So we like people that like us. And we believe people we like. If we like somebody, we give them the benefit of the doubt. We want to believe them. So we believe people that we like, and we like people that like us. So that follows that we believe people that like us. Now that means, okay, hang on, there's <laughs> another dot to this. That means if we're a good audience, 
we're going to be believed. The best example I've seen of this is I represented Oprah in the Mad Cow case up in Amarillo. And the first time we did a mock trial with her, we're in my courtroom in Dallas, and we have 50 jurors in the box, and she comes in and takes the witness stand. Now, of course, you've got 50 people there, and Oprah walks in. Right. And they don't know what it's about when they get there, because we don't tell them ahead of time. We've pre-screened them. They've signed NDAs and everything. They're in there. And Oprah walks in, and they're like, holy God, you know, here's Oprah. And it's about her being sued for billions of dollars. She's pissed off. I mean, she doesn't like being sued. She doesn't like being there. She doesn't like having to go through it. This is not the Oprah they've seen on TV. This isn't the charming Oprah. This isn't the, hey, everybody, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. (laughs) She is pissed off. She's sitting there. She's glaring at these people. So afterwards, I'm debriefing the jury. They go deliberate. We have six deliberation rooms, all on closed circuit television, all feeding to a control room and to a client viewing room. She's watching these deliberations, and it's not going well. Then I go in and debrief the 50 jurors, and I come to, okay, tell me about Oprah. How did she impact you as a witness? They're like, oh, my God, horrible. I felt terrible about it. Only time it's ever happened. I've got a full-size federal courtroom there, double doors at the end, burst open, and she comes running in, crying. And she says, it's not true. It's not true. I'm not a bitch. I'm not. It's not true. It's not true. Why are you saying that? One of the jurors said, Oprah, why are you glaring at us? Why are you? We didn't sue you. Yeah. It wasn't us. We, why are you mad at us? We didn't sue you. And she goes, oh, my God. <laughs> She's a light bulb moment. I'm taking it out on you guys. You're exactly right. Things turned in that moment. We believe people that like us. And from that moment on, she got, I've got to come in, face the jury, make eye contact with them. When they look at me, acknowledge them, bond with them. And from that moment forward, she was the best witness I ever had in 15 years. And when she went to actual trial, slayed them, Mm -hmm. put her on the stand. She was articulate, effective, credible, powerful. She owned that jury because she bonded with him, made eye contact, gave minimal encouragers, did all of those things. She was a great audience to their nonverbals. She acknowledged them, made them feel important. You can really affect how you come across by how you engage with people, right? You can. And and the thing is, is that what happens is that we're sending messages. So there's a sending and receiving of messages going back and forth. And people, even the untrained person, is trying to decode what you're what you're actually saying through your nonverbals. And they're also, what they're doing is they're, they're watching those nonverbals and they're also connecting it to someone that they might remember that looked like that. Yeah, that's a good point, right? It is. And so they start to project like that woman's voice reminds me of my ex-wife. I don't like her. And they automatically taint them. It's not likable. But likability is really important, as you know, like even with attorneys. I mean, attorneys can shift how jurors feel about their client just based on their own presentation of themselves, their facial expressions, how they look at the jury, their tone that they use, their facial expressions, their grimaces, all of that plays into how people perceive you. And you're right. 
people are going to judge you from the minute they set eyes on you. And it's going to be very hard for them to be able to walk away from that and think differently. You have to prove it to them that you're different. And when I'm training people in my courses is that even with mediators and attorneys and say your outcome of that verdict is a direct reflection of how well you communicate with other people. Mm -hmm. So if you've got this grimace look on you, even that concentration can look like uh, meanness or someone that's angry and it could be concentration. People might misread that because the average person doesn't know how to actually decode body language accurately. They're just labeling those gestures to something they're familiar with. For example, one of the things I ask people is like uh, the very beginning of my training classes is how many of you are feel like you're really good at like reading a liar or reading people? And they'll raise their, oh, I'm really good. I said, well, the research has found that the reason why you're able to pick up those clues is because you're a pretty good liar yourself. <laughs> because exactly. you can pick up on things that you've actually used in the past and that's why you can see <clears throat> it in other people and then recognize it. Right. If we're telling people how to connect and bond, you said eye contact, and we're not talking about the hundred yard stare. We're talking about right the creepy one. Yeah, you're talking about relaxed but consistent eye contact. Right, leaning in, nodding along, and giving the minimal encouragers. You become a good audience. Yes, and that makes you bond. That helps people feel comfortable with you. It does. They feel acceptance, so they're going to yes. like you. And what I'm saying is, they like you. They're going to believe you. That is absolutely true. They will believe you because people trust people that they like. That's just the, the natural reaction. How, you know, when you think about it in sales and they mentioned the person you bought the car from, they'll say, hey, go down there and go see my buddy. He's really a great guy. I really like him. Well, what they're really saying is that he gave me a good deal, but you know, that connection that I had with them mm-hmm. makes me feel like I want to trust them. Yeah. There's also danger in that though, too, from the opposite end because people that are perpetrators that really hone in on uh, people to take advantage of them, bank on that. So they know that those charming techniques, those rapport building skills that they've learned in classes that they come to like myself, my clerk, I mean, my classes that they come to, uh, that I teach, that by using those techniques that I've trained, they can actually use it in a negative way too. Yeah, because I've always said, I think you can trust people, or at least my formula is, I trust people as much as I trust myself to be able to deal with whatever they do. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be perfect. If I trust myself enough to deal with your flaws and fallacies, then I can trust you. If I'm so fragile that you have to be perfect, then I can't trust you very much. But if I trust myself to be you don't have to be perfect, you make a mistake, you say something that maybe hurts my feelings or you make a misstatement or whatever. If I trust myself enough to be resilient, to come back from that, to filter out something that's said wrong or even misrepresented, then I don't have to go through life with sweaty palms. If I trust myself to be discerning enough, then 
I don't have to go through life scared. You got to trust yourself first. Then you don't have to be so worried about what somebody else does. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, even, you know, I think about that's important for even our kids to know, right? Our, yeah. our teenagers to be able to say, hey, I want to trust in themselves and not try to become. Mm. We talked about this uh, earlier today uh, in conversation is that oftentimes what people do, even in business, they, they act out what they think that their boss may want them to be like. So become more assertive, uh, be more powerful, be more commanding. Um, and then they get off, off of their own natural gifts, right? Yeah. They, they get outside of their own gifts and talents and they now become mm -hmm. another person's identity. So you have to trust who you are, embrace who you are, embrace your own natural gifts. And I hate the word so much as authentic, but just be okay with who you are and accept it and when you get to that place, then your nonverbals will fall in place. If you're feeling confident within yourself, your nonverbals will be confident. Yeah. If you're feeling shy and introverted, your nonverbals will look shy and introverted. So it's all here first, and, and psychologically, what you think and feel is gonna be projected outside. Yeah, I always talked about it as being congruent. If all your nonverbals are congruent with what you're saying, mm -hmm. then it's just smooth. People read you right. They just seem like, you know, she just seems real to me because mm -hmm. everything she says just clicks with everything she seems to be. I mean, it just all clicks. Yes. The way she presents, everything just seems to go. And I think if you're around somebody that's not congruent, it's just like music that's offbeat. It just doesn't Boy, get your ear right. This, exactly. And, and things are not fitting right. You know, when you're around somebody going, you know, it's just something's not fitting. And that's really should be looked at anything from across the board. Things that don't fit together, well, if there's a reason for it. If there's discord or disconnect, there's because yeah. there is a disconnect. I always counseled the lawyers I worked with, and I had the privilege of working with some great counsel. We were going to do two things. One was we were going to outfare the other side. Like in terms of the jury and how they looked at us, we wanted them to perceive us as being more fair than the other side. We didn't want to be objecting all the time. We didn't want to be trying to keep stuff out all the time. We might do that, but we were going to do it outside the presence mm -hmm. of the jury. But in front of the jury, we wanted to seem like we were being more fair than the other side, more fair than the judge. We're just gonna outfair the other side. And I've always found if you can get in partnership with your boss, your coworker, a jury, or whatever, if you can get them to be your partner in your objective, they're a lot less likely to criticize it. I used to work with physicians and we would talk to them about how to cut down on physician complaints, malpractice claims and all. And my advice to them was always, get your patient to take ownership in the treatment plan. Because if they own it, they're not gonna criticize themselves. So instead of, here's my treatment plan for you, it's like, let's sit down and work out a treatment plan. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Here's what I think on the medical side. You know your life, your style. Let's work out a treatment plan. And when they both owned the treatment plan, complaints and malpractice cases went to almost zero. Yeah, I can see that because when you get people on board with you to help yep. them to make the decisions and you make those decisions together, then people buy into it because yep. they have taken ownership in it. Yeah. And then when they take ownership in it, they feel like it's themselves. And so therefore, 
Yeah. You're going to get a better Then they outcome. want it to succeed. So we would tell juries, okay, together we're going to solve this puzzle. Yeah. Together we're going to figure this out. And at the end say, we've worked hard for the last six weeks, and I think we've solved the puzzle. Right. And here's what we've come up with. And I love it when you're saying together, yeah. right? Or us, or we. When we start yeah. using these types of words, it, it brings people together. When you start using those first singular pronouns, I, me, and my, then we isolate yeah. people. So if we want to include people, which is great because I'm also a mediator, and I love watching the different parties negotiate back and yeah. forth. And it's, it's really interesting to watch the dynamics between them when I know for a fact that they're not going to, they're not, this, this is not going to close. We are not going to come to an agreement just because there is such a discord between the parties. What do you think about confirmation bias and running up against somebody that seems to be deeply entrenched? Do they communicate that non-verbally? Can you read that when you're just hitting a brick wall? I'm talking about people that have a belief and now they have a filter where they only see information that confirms what they already believe and are completely blind to anything that would challenge that, disprove that, or move their position. They are tunnel visioned to the exclusion of anything that would broaden their perspective. Yeah, and it's very sad because those are the type of people that just don't grow, right? They only see just what's in front of them, and that's it. And also, I think that it has a lot to do with fear. People don't want to accept what would stretch and help them to grow. So if they're not going to you know, take on a different way of thinking, then, then I'm kind of safe where I'm at. We're, what I love is learning outside of what I already know. It helps me to kind of branch out my way of thinking. But I know what you're talking about because I'm going to tell you a story. Is I've become very close friends with two of the Pulse nightclub survivors mm -hmm. in Orlando. They're both um, gentlemen who lived a lifestyle they weren't proud of in a lot of ways. Drugs and alcohol, promiscuous lifestyle. One of them ended up having, uh, getting AIDS. Mm -hmm. Through that experience transformed their lives and they started a new journey in their lives. So now they are the former, the LGBT community now have become Christians that have formed these groups of followers that have come out of it said, this isn't going to work for me. And what's happened is the other group is saying, oh, nope, nope, that's not good. You must be haters. You're haters of us because, you know, you've left our group. They're going, no, I just changed my life. This is what I've wanted. It has nothing to do with conversion therapy or anything. As if people want to link it. So then become haters because it's against what makes them feel good. Mm -hmm. But knowing them personally, I know their walk and, and the persecution they've gone through. So we persecute people because we don't take the time to really understand them. I mean, you're a psychologist, Dr. Phil, and I'm sure you see a lot of this all the time. And uh, it, it's really sad to me to see where we have formed opinions about things. We can't go outside of what's safe. I mean, look on Facebook. I can't tell you how many times I've had to bump people off my Facebook because if they're a Democrat or a Republican, right? And if, unless you go with their ways and their beliefs, forget it. You know, they're just blasting you because it has a very tunnel vision. But also I think that there's pride and ego and also, also fear in there. I think it is fear driven. They're so closed, it's difficult to get through there. And 
you can try and be empathetic. You can try and reflect their feelings. You can try and let that resonate and trust the principle of reciprocity mm-hmm. where I'll hear you and trust that you'll then hear me. But we seem to have gone beyond that. I think it's pride. That used to be the case. Mm-hmm. I've always counseled people in arguments that your goal should not be to win. Your goal should be to be heard. Right. And then just leave it at that. And across time, you're going to get most of what you want. If you're with a partner that you love and loves you, they're going to find a way to get you the most of what you want. Right. And you're going to do the same with them. But I think in this country right now, we're past that. There is no reciprocity. You agree with me or screw you. Yeah. It's like there are star-bellied snitches and non-star-bellied <laughs> snitches. Yeah. It's like you're yeah. on the outside. Yeah. And I see hostility a lot that I just didn't see it before. No, and I see it a lot to myself. I, I see where families are divided. People become divided based on their own personal beliefs. And they take their beliefs as if it is grounded in stone or is written in stone. And it's not written in stone. But we're, we're talking about characteristics of a person that has stopped growing emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And when you don't feed each one of those parts of who we really are, and we shut that down and we start forming these opinions, uh, I think that pride and ego and is a huge problem uh, in the United States. And you know, when I'm putting on my training programs and I work with attorneys and you know how big of egos they have, Dr. Phil, And I said, take your ego, dump it in the trash can, you can come into my classroom. And once they do, they're great at it because they're smart, they're good wordsmiths, and they do a great job. Let's talk about this for a second. And back to Betty in Idaho. (laughs) Let's bust some myths about lie detection. Yes. We're talking about deception detection because... You read all of this stuff about people when they lie, they look up to the left and stuff. And we know that's a load of crap. But there are things that ordinary people with a little bit of thought and a little bit of practice can use to detect when somebody's lying to them. Yes. Give us some of those rules and guidelines. Well, first of all, there's no specific gesture that it gives way to deception, slam dunk like a Shaquille O'Neal moment. There's no such thing. But rather, they happen in clusters. First thing is, you have to understand or read their baseline. And you talked about that. Understand, read them up and down, see how they normally respond in everyday life, and look for deviations from that. So if I'm having a conversation with someone, and I'm asking a probative question, and then at that point in time, they shift their eyes, lick their lips, and adjust their chair, I know that's a cluster, because that happens in three uh, different gestures to happen within a certain period of time. We call, mm-hmm. I call it the three-seven rule. So as you're looking for three different gestures and movements from their baseline in a five to second period. In fact, the new book that I'm writing is called No Bull, How to Detect Deception in Seven Seconds or Less. Okay. So if you apply those principles, you can read them. So looking up, like you talked about, looking up to the right, to the left, looking down, that's an old myth. In fact, 22 out of 23 peer-reviewed research articles have debunked that research, and uh, there's nothing to back it up. What we're looking for are indicators of deception. For example, Christopher Watts, I saw him shrugging his shoulders often. And when he's shrugging his shoulders, 
and it's not with, I don't know, I don't think so, whatever. And it's, they're giving you a question saying, honey, you look great in that dress. And then you shrug your shoulder. <laughs> okay. We know you weren't being sincere. So that's one of them. The other thing is we found is that people's eyes will dilate. We know that when people, there's this arousal. In fact, there's a new technology out now that's called eye detect that they can detect just based on, you know, um, pupil enlargement, whether somebody's being deceptive. But the main thing is, is that find out how that person lies. Everyone lies differently. So there's no certain method of lying, but humans haven't changed since the beginning of mankind. There's no new way to lie. You're looking for different movements, different from off their norm, when you ask a question that might create anxiety, a stimulus, we call it. Does everybody lie? Yes. How often do people lie in a day? They can lie up to up to 10 times or more. I mean, there's, they say that like a person will lie within two times and one hour to their spouse. I mean, they've got all kinds of statistics that'll back right. that up. What are the main reasons people lie when they lie? Many reasons. And let me back up. When you're talking about lying, there could be different forms of lying. Boastful. It could be adding, exaggerating. That's not really what I call a lie lie. Those are just kind of, I call them little white lies, so to speak. Fluffing. Fluffing, exactly. You know, so they lie because they want to get out of trouble. They lie because uh, they want to protect somebody else from harm. You might see that often in children that have been abused by a parent. In fact, we saw a a horrible video on YouTube about a, a judge that was uh, beating their child with a whip. I don't know if you've seen that one. And the child, ended, a, a teenager, ended up uh, videotaping at a webcam. So hopefully somebody would, would believe them, right? So we see those kind of things. Which they may lie to people around them when they've noticed, divorce, I mean, noticed uh, bruises or uh, things on their body that look like they'd have been abused and they deny it. It's because they're trying to protect themselves from harm. So they protect themselves from harm. They protect other people from getting into trouble. They use it uh, to uh, maybe thrill. They, they like the thrill of it. Uh, bolsting pride. Take credit for work they didn't do. Yeah. Plagiarizing. Yeah. And escape accountability. Yes, that's another they, one. They lie about something they did when they don't want to get in trouble for it. That's for sure. So if we're talking to just the average person, they got kids, they've got a spouse, and looking at these clusters, I want to be real clear with people about clusters because if they learn these individual behaviors and somebody does one of them, they go, ah, yes. you're lying. It may just be just a habit. This is the way they express themselves. But if they're in clusters and there's a pattern of clusters in particular, now you got a problem. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth. But when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. That's right. That's when you now know 
that they're being deceptive or there's something different. And that's really important, especially with parents, with teen, uh, teenagers that might be involved in some sort of dangerous behaviors, mm -hmm. is looking for those changes in their demeanor. Their affect is off. They're, they seem to be more anxious or nervous than normal. You, they are isolating themselves. They're going into other rooms and staying away from people. When you ask them direct questions, they avert their eyes and they walk away or they turn their shoulders away. They're different. The most important thing is to look for something that's not their typical. And and we know that all the time. In fact, in the Chris Watts uh, case, the neighbor next door saw Chris Watts go in, uh, in his car, back his car out, and he's going, something's weird about this guy's behavior. He never does that. He's off the baseline. So that's what I'm talking about. Look for something that's off the baseline that can be in business, kids, your marriage. It doesn't matter. It goes all the way across the line. When you're actually interrogating someone, do you agree that people just don't confess in a crowd? That no. you're better off to get them by themselves? Yeah, and also into an environment where they feel safer in. So mm -hmm. oftentimes, if you get them into an environment where they're more familiar with, they're going to be at ease. In fact, there's also, I've heard that um, if you offer them something warmer to drink versus an ice cold Coke or something, mm -hmm. they're more willing to be able to share and open up with you. And your rapport building skills. You know, it's got to be in a place where they feel safe. If you're, you're you're putting them up against the wall in a corner and there's nothing on the walls and it's all white, it's automatically going to increase anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. So when there's already anxiety built up, it's hard to read the tells because the tells could be because the environment in itself is creating all these uh, physiological responses, which could look just like deception. Yeah. So the more familiar that area is, the one that feels uh, an, area, an environment that feels more comfortable, a person's going to be more apt to open up. And again, the person who's interviewing them, their demeanor, their eye contact, their voice inflection, how they're responding to the subject, it's going to make a world of difference whether you're going to get a confession or not. How do you feel about convincing statements? When you ask somebody, you know, maybe petty cash is missing at the office. And so you're questioning 10 people. And you come to person eight and they say, listen, people will tell you I am the most honest person <laughs> to ever work in this yeah. office. I swear to God that I give more money to charity than is missing here. Yes. How important is that in your analysis? Very important. And those are red herrings, too. So if they go, go through the list of red herrings and read about it, you know, uh, loophole lying and third-person gimmicks, there's several of them, what people say. And when they start invoking religion, I swear to God, you know, ask, or, oh, here, ask my best friend so-and-so. I go to church with him on Sundays. You, you should believe me. I'm a good guy. And they try to paint this picture. Because remember, deceptive people, what they do is, they paint a picture about themselves to convince the other person that they're credible. So it's in that logic that when they start giving you that information and self-affirmation, like I'm, I'm this great guy, that in itself should give you pause. Because if you're a good person, you don't have to tell someone you're a good person. You don't have to swear to God in order to be truthful. What did you say you called it? Loophole? Loophole lying. What is loophole, loophole lying? Loophole lying is when you make a conversation and they loop it back around. We see this a lot, time, a lot of times in politics. Politics will loophole lie through something. They'll tell you something and they kind of loop it right back over and say, well, ask so-and-so. You know, he'll tell you I'm a good person. It's a way to kind of loophole around it. But, you know, when they're telling you 
how much they give to charity. They're telling you that everybody knows they're honest. While they're doing all that, they're not answering your question. No, and that's a really good point because when if they don't answer the question and they answer the question with another question to try to figure out maybe what you know or ask uh, additional information or take you off base, kind of throw you off guard, that should be a clue. You, you shake your head no when it's a yes question or say yes and you're shaking your head no. They're incongruent. So those are a lot, there's so many different types of clues to look for when somebody is being deceptive. These are really good signs for people to watch for, though. If they give these departures from baseline, and if you're working with a family member or a coworker, you have a pretty good baseline. And what you're saying is look for clusters of departures from those baselines where they're just behaving out of the ordinary. Don't dismiss that. Don't dismiss it. And that's what people tend to do. They dismiss it and then they rationalize it. Mm-hmm. You know, they start saying, well, they had a bad day or so-and-so did this or that. And they start to rationalize it away. I'm saying take it for what it is because in lying, people, is and just in words in general, okay, the subconscious mind is the one who chose, it's through your subconscious that you'll write down every word that you put on paper. It's your subconscious that will write down or to say every single word that comes out of your mouth. So they chose it. No one else chose it. Just you chose it. So if you look at it in that way and don't try to think around it, through it, rationalize it, and just look at it as it is and don't do anything else on and just look at basically evidence that's before you and analyze just that. So that's what we do in in statement analysis. In statement analysis, every single word that a person puts on a paper is relevant. Mm -hmm. It's not by mistake that Chris Watts used the word was in past tense, okay? Or that they might omit the word I in an event so that they won't put themselves into it. Or that they add the dot, 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 which means that there's more information or they use hand gestures that kind of flail around. We saw Chris Watts doing that, like, you know, well, I I killed her, and he kind of does this with his hands. He's telling you there was more to the story. I found in interrogation, at least my experience has been, never accept the first admission. Yeah. Because they're not going to tell you the worst thing first. No. They're going to tell you the easiest thing to admit first. And when I get an admission from someone up front, I always say, thank you for that. That really helps us move along. Now, let's talk about what else you know. Right. Because if they've killed three people, they're seldom going to start with that. They're going to start with something like, you know, I've probably done something I shouldn't, or maybe I shouldn't have been there, or maybe I was too judgmental. They're going to build up to telling you that. Right. And if you say, oh, well, okay, thanks for admitting that. Appreciate you coming. Whoa, no, wait a minute. They just told you the first thing they're going to tell you. There's a whole lot more coming. Mm -hmm. And I see people stop too soon. They do stop too soon. And they also don't hitchhike off from the words that they say. So when we're talking about minimal encouragers, I'm going to talk about a little different types of minimal encourager. If somebody says, well, this is all I can say right now. You might want to say right now, because that's really going to say, that's telling us there's more they're going to tell us later. So when you're talking about that confession, that's showing me that 
they're closer to confessing because they're showing little resistance. But the very beginning in any sort of interrogation, we're expecting them to deny. Right. We want them to deny, right? Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. We want them to continue to deny. And then after they continue to deny, we know we're closer to them giving us more information. It's, it's interesting psychologically what happens because all they're really telling us is that they're holding back information. And that's really what most people do. Most people, um, when they're deceptive, will tell you the truth. And I know that sounds really crazy, but they'll tell you the truth because it's too hard to lie. Physiologically on the body, it's too hard to lie. So they'll they'll inject truths, like we saw that with a Christopher Watts. He'll tell them where he was, where he's going to be, because it's easier to release some of that stress and that guilt, because I'm just gonna give you just niblets of truth within that lie. Do you find it effective to plant a mind virus with someone? I want people to be sure and not confuse this with bluffing. Because if you bluff and you get caught, you lose power in the interview. But if you ask someone like OJ, if you say to OJ, is there any reason someone would have told me they saw you in that neighborhood last night? Yeah. You're not saying someone did. You're saying, is there any reason somebody would have told me they saw you there last night? That's what I call planting a mind virus. Yes. Because we think at 1,250 words a minute, Mm -hmm. we speak at 125 words a minute. If he wasn't there, he should give you a no immediately. That's true. But if he has to stop and think, who could have saw me? (laughs) Uh, Let's see. I didn't see any cars. I don't remember anybody. Uh, No, nobody should. If he has to take five seconds to think that, and you're thinking at 1,250 words a minute, Mm -hmm. then in five seconds, you can go through 20 or 30 words to describe to yourself possibilities. Why do you have to turn that over in your head and repeat the question back to me twice before you answer? Stalling. You know you weren't there. Right. Unless you know you were. Right. You know, uh, Read Investigative Interrogative is an organization that teaches, which I've taken several of their courses, about theming and storytelling. And we, you know, we make them think that we know more than what we actually do. For example, you come into a room and you've got a stack of books there and might have CDs and all kinds of tapes and saying, you just put your hand on it, just anchor it. And automatically the person's thinking, oh my God, they got a bunch of stuff on me. So, so, for example, is, is we minimize, we want to minimize what they've done. Like, for example, I know you're not a bad guy. You know, you seem like you're a really good guy, stand-up citizen. You know, you take good care of your family. You know, you've paid your rent every single month. I just can't imagine why you would do this. Why do you think that Betty would make that accusation? Well, maybe because... I needed a little extra money or whatever. So you needed a little extra money? So then you can start playing off in their words. You start using their own words, what they say, minimal encouragers to get them going. So you get people to talk long enough, they will always hang themselves. So most people can only pay attention to what they're saying or what how they're presenting themselves. It's either their presentation or what they're saying. They will only focus on one or the other but they will completely forget other parts of it. 
And that's what we find in some of these criminals that think that they're so good at fooling us, they're going to trip up in one or the two. Yeah. And there's two different things here that I want people to think about. There's a difference between deception detection, finding a liar or finding the lie, and getting to the truth. Yeah. Those are two different things. It's one thing to find out whether somebody's lying or not. So now you know, okay, I found a liar here. That's one thing, but that's only half the battle. Okay, now you found this person's lying. Now you've got to get to the truth. Just knowing that they're lying doesn't tell you Professor Plum did it in the library with the candlestick. You still got to figure out. So you got to find out, okay, I've got a liar here. What is the truth? Right. And getting to the truth is different than spotting the liar. So you've got to first determine whether somebody's lying to you or not. And we've talked about they'll give that away by departing from baseline. They'll give it away by using convincing statements. Another thing I've seen them often do, and I use a mind virus sometimes. That's a big tell to me. And I'll also sometimes ask them, what do you think should happen to somebody that's doing Oh, that's this? really good. And then usually tell they just need counseling, <laughs> yeah. Dr. Phil. <laughs> and if it's somebody that is innocent, they'll say, burn them. Yeah, they to hang them from the courthouse lawn. And if it's somebody that's guilty, they'll say, well, you know, people deserve a second chance. Yeah. You know, it's just happens. I right, mean, right. they minimize and trivialize because they're thinking, I'm going to get caught here in about 20 minutes, right. so let's start easing up on this. That's a big tell, right? It is a big tell. So Absolutely. if you ask your kid, what do you think should happen if a kid sneaks out at night? Oh, you know, I think... You take know, your allowance away. <laughs> yeah, you know, take their phone away for 20 minutes. I mean, you know, they start right. trivializing. Yeah. Those things are all good tells. If they put their hands to their face a lot, mm-hmm. has been really a consistent cluster item for yes. me. They try and hide their mouth. It's like, I don't want you to see me say this. It's like they put their hands or they touch their nose. And if you see that with them averting eye contact, all those things in clusters start to tell you a lot. They do, because when you're lying, it causes this physiological response, right? So we go into that fight or flight mode and all the blood kind of rushes away from the little capillaries and it creates this irritation. So people start itching their face and scratching their uh, cheeks or rubbing their neck. Any hand to face movement should always be um, recognized. Anytime, like for example, girls that are dating guys, I loved this when I was single, you know, well, this is what I do for a living. I make X, Y, Z. And they come across and they scratch their face. I'm going, liar. (laughs) You know, I'm only 20. (laughs) I saw a study the other day and I forget the percentage, but it was something like 90% of the time the liar in an interrogation situation will point their feet towards the door. I don't know. I'm not familiar with that percentage, but they will point their toes or their body language towards the exit of the door because they're basically saying, I, this is, the heat's too hot here. I, I got to get out there. It's so interesting if you know these things. And Betty and Idaho, these are things that can be learned that you can watch for. You have to remember to watch for them in clusters. Right to see if somebody's lying, and then get to the truth. One of the things I do in trying to get to the truth, and I saw it happen with the interrogator with Chris Watts right before he confessed. I 
always try and keep people from flat out saying they didn't do it right before I'm going to try and get them to confess because they don't have a face-saving way out then. Right. If they say, I did not do it, it's hard to come back from that. And so if I start to see them do that, if they start to say, I did, I'll say, Chris, let me stop you. I call their name out and stop them so they don't make that statement. Because once they make that, it's like they've thrown a stake in the ground Mm -hmm. and it's going to be hard to get them to pull that stake up and make 180 degrees and come back. Psychologically, why make it hard for them to have a face-saving way to reverse field and come out? Don't let them do that. Right. Don't let them throw down that they didn't do it. And I'll say, Chris... Let me stop you there. Look, I know that you did this. I just need you to tell me why. Mm-hmm. Or I've really got some problems with your story. I need you to help me understand some of these. I'll say that if I'm not sure. I'll say I know. I just need to know why if I am sure. Right. If I'm close to sure but not, I'll say Frankly, I've got some problems with your story, and I need you to help me with five or six things. Will you help me with this? Yeah, and what you're doing is you're helping them to come on your team to help yep. you to solve that problem or solve help that mystery. Help me work this out. I agree with you 100%. And I really have had a lot of good luck with that and keeping them in what I call the short-term time frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't think about a year from now. It's you and me right here. Help me figure this out. And if I can keep them in the moment and they don't realize as soon as I answer that question, it ain't going to be just you and me. (laughs) As soon as I answer this question, there's going to be nine FBI agents come in here and I'm going to have a different life. I just want people to know these steps that they can go through on the website. The most important thing that the listeners need to know is number one is don't jump so fast to make a judgment because reading people is not judging a person's character. It's reading the nonverbal cues. It's reading what we have in front of us and then kind of decoding that and putting a meaning behind it. And they do have to happen in clusters. Mm -hmm. So what often people, people, people do is they pass judgment. They scratch their face one time and all that, ah, they're lying. And even in my training classes, when I'm, when even when I teach mediators and judges and attorneys, and I'll go through the entire training class with them and, and tell them over and over again, you need to see these things in clusters and not pull out just individual cues and all of a sudden think you're going to have a slam dunk. And, and inevitably at the end, they will pull out one cue and they'll say they're lying. So we have to be really careful of uh, looking at people as liars, but looking at them as truth tellers. Mm -hmm. So if we're evaluating the truthfulness of others and not trying to find the deception, you won't have go in there with bias. And all you're doing is allowing them to talk, listen to what they're saying, look for things that happen in clues uh, and clusters, and then cluster those movements with what just happened right then. You've given us some examples here. Yes. We have, and we'll put these on the website because they can't see them now, but this is Bill Cosby's mugshot. Yeah. 
What do you see in that? He's depleted. Same time, you can see the pain and suffering in his forehead. And what do you see in his forehead? Well, what I'm seeing is the wrinkles across his forehead, as, as these muscle movements that are right here, that's showing tension, mm -hmm. distress and pain in his forehead. His mouth is turned down right here because he knows at this point in time, there is no way out. You see all this, it's not grief for other people. It's like, it's, it's the expression that he's feeling that he's caught and that's causing this physiological response of the wrinkling um, in his forehead and the muscle movements here. But what you look at, you compare the top portion of the face to the bottom. His eyes are turned down. You see the corners of his mouth turned down. He's in sadness. So this is in reflection. He's looking at, at probably right now, remembering everything that has happened in the past and he's reflecting and you're seeing that tension and pain there mm -hmm. in his forehead. Yeah, because that's a lot of tension he's carrying right yeah. there, right? Yes. All but right. his whole face is flat. His affect is gone. It's like his, all of his um, emotion has literally flooded from his body. It's, it's, I call this, his face is melted off. Right. And sadness. Now, we're looking at Christine Ford yes. during her testimony. Yes. You have some interesting observations about her at this time. We had talked earlier about congruence. Yes. Is her message here, her nonverbals, her facial expressions, her micro expressions, are these consistent with her verbal message? Well, we're looking at this particular facial expression right here. We're looking at a couple of things. She's got her glasses down. So this right. is a type of person that can be critical. Sometimes we even see a judge do that when mm -hmm. they'll peer over and above their eyes. But when you look at her, um, her bottom of her, half of her mouth, there, the corners again of her mouth are turned down. Right. That sadness. Now in older women, naturally we have this turning down just in aging, but it's that flat cheek, flat affect that comes from the cheek on down. So there's no movement. There's no lifting of the cheeks of someone that feels confident in what she's doing. Even though her eyes are wide open, look at the the sadness, you can see sadness even in her forehead, even though her eyebrows are not turned up. Uh, we often we look for sadness where the corners, the pinches in the, in the center and they kind of go up like in an S curve. You don't see that so much, but when you see any type of horizontal movement here on the forehead, that's when <clears throat> the person's under emotional distress. Horizontal movement, you mean? The horizontal lines across the face shows emotional distress. Okay. And then we look at the bottom of the face, right? She's listening, her eyes are wide open. She's listening, she's got her eyes down, she's focused, she's attentive, but the bottom of, face of, of her face is very sad. Did you believe her? Yes, I did. You Not did. all of it. Did she believe herself? She believed herself, and what she didn't believe is that she was also a participant in her being in that room with Kavanaugh by himself. Because in statement analysis, we look for words like we, and she uses the word we. We is a joined together. So you don't go with a perpetrator as a couple. You go individually as I. Mm -hmm. So we saw the word we pop in there. The mm -hmm. other thing is, is that what happened was behind the, those closed doors, I think the environment changed and he got more aggressive with her. And then when he was asked the question, did he grind her? Did you grind her? That's when you saw the clusters of behavior of deception. So it is my professional opinion at that point in time, he was not telling us the full truth. 
There's something that happened there. But you think they went in there together. They went in there together. What happened once they were in there is open to debate. Yes. Because nobody knows once the door and was he closed. And he got aggressive and she didn't like it and that's where the environment changed. Did you believe him? No, not as much. Do you think he was coached? No, I, he couldn't keep his emotions in check, Dr. Phil. That was the problem. He was, I mean, when somebody is being accused of something, the natural reaction is probably defend and to, and to be angry. But he also knows courtroom decorum, right? So he knows how he's supposed to conduct himself. This is what he does for a living. He became completely unglued. He was over the top angry, showing all kinds of areas of, of deceptive indicators, which caused me to have pause. What were the deceptive indicators? He showed contempt and lots of scorn and anger, like, how dare you ask me those questions? How dare you think that of me? I mean, there was a, it was so extreme, it looked like a mad dog. Well, we know that the sneer is the one asymmetrical facial expression in mankind, right? Yes. I don't know how to do it. You're talking about contempt because this, yeah. contempt is a unilateral movement yeah. when the mouth goes to one side or the other. And that's contempt. That's, like, that's more like, yeah, I, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. You're full of crap. But then you mix that with this, the nose going up, which is a snare. It's a, it's a vertical movement. The snare, that is what we call a dangerous, that's dangerous demeanor. When you cluster that together, that is a very powerful cocktail and it's linked with abuse of behavior. So that's what brought pause to me. If you, you look at some of the training and the research behind Dr. Um, Matsumoto's work in dangerous demeanor and also Dr. Paul Ekman, you'll notice that there is these uh, clusters of emotions that you see fleeting across the face that are uh, indicators of a a perpetrated attack. So the expressions that he was showing was consistent with what we would have seen in dangerous demeanor. Do you think people have a general persona, a general way they carry and present themselves in the world? Yeah, I think that everybody has their own persona, their own individual persona. Mm -hmm. Yes, they do. And then if, if that's what his demeanor would be in an everyday life, which I don't think it is, then that would be if that was his normal demeanor, then that wouldn't have been considered being anything to look at because you were looking at twicks or movements or things that are similar, that are their norm, uh, even though they may be linked to deceptive behaviors, but if they smirk all the time, then that's their, it's their they're just condescending or yeah. they're just naturally condescending. So read my body language, my persona. <laughs> Your persona. Read me. You're very relaxed. Tell my fortune. <laughs> You're very relaxed. You're leaning back, which is, he's now relaxed. We've been talking for a long time. We've built rapport. We're making great eye contact. When I'm looking at your body language, look at your legs are more... Um, opened in the sense that They're you're not feeling face towards the exit no, so no, it's no. not like i want so out of here <laughs> here's a person that is more open and free to talk you're also in your body language is not contrite and it's not tight it's more open so i see it as a more powerful confident individual yeah good thing bad thing good thing you watch me on tv i don't know that you watch me all the time <laughs> but I you've seen me it. i do how do you think people read me on television i think that people look at you is that you, they see you as a person that has knowledge that knows what they know because you have a um your demeanor is one that is easygoing that is very likable and approachable 
but yet you have a sense of authority without having to make a lot of movement. And the lack of that lots of movement is showing you that you are a very confident individual. I wouldn't use the word powerful because that's not how you appear. You just appear confident. And in your gestures, when you're talking to people, you're using a lot of open hand gestures because you're looking for feedback and collaboration. But when you don't like something, you'll, you'll put the hand up here or you'll put your palm down and like, this is the way that it is. Let me tell you something, stop right there. So you do use some strong hand gestures, but I'm thinking about when you come right out on the stage, you have a very relaxed way about you, which makes people feel comfortable from the very beginning. You don't come across pompous or arrogant. Well, well sometimes good. we see, because you know when you come across too powerful, it can set people off, especially for those people that don't feel powerful about themselves. So you have this very natural flow and fluidity in your movements is what I see. I learned something one time that you would think I'd be smart enough to have known on my own, but when I was in practice, I had a behavioral medicine practice, psychology mm -hmm. and physiology, you know, how they come together. So I made rounds at the hospital every morning, calling on the medical population. I dealt with a lot of brain and spinal cord injuries, and I worked with a neurosurgeon, Paul Renton, just a terrific guy. I learned so much from him, and he's passed away now, sadly. But I've always had the ability to get people to talk to me and just tell me anything. That was probably the thing I enjoyed the most was I could get lots of information in a short period of time. And I was going in and talking to men that had been injured on the job. So they were in bed and I would come in and I couldn't get them to talk to me like I normally did. And I thought, what is the deal? And Paul Renton's a little guy with about a 400 IQ. <laughs> he called me out in the hall one day and he said, hey, come here, dummy. <laughs> he said, you want to know why those guys aren't talking to you? I said, yeah, actually I would. And he said, these are men that work with their back and their arms and their shoulders. They're macho and they're powerful. And you're six foot four lording over them when they feel so compromised, they can't get up, they can't move their back is injured, they feel like they're half a man, and then here you come in lording over them and they're feeling terribly intimidated and inadequate. So they're not gonna talk to you. Right. So I went in the very next room and pulled up a chair next to the bed and got down at their level yes. and said, hey, bang. Yeah. They started talking to me, we were eyeball to eyeball right. again, and I'm like, you're the psychologist. How dumb are you that you didn't think about that? I was in such a hurry seeing 20 people. I'm zooming through there and I thought, God, you always learn something. Right. And, you know, Bill Clinton was an excellent rapport builder because when he was talking to people, he always made them feel like they were important. Yeah. And he came eye to eye level. And that's what's important in leadership or in this type of business is to make sure that you can adjust your stance, your body language, so that you can be more eye to eye with other people because people trust you more, they like you more uh, when you're looking at each other from eye to eye at the same level. Because you think about it, somebody's towering over you, you look like a dictator. Yeah. If you're, if you're down too low, you lose your um, credibility. So it's really important to not let people know that you, you know, that you can validate, that you 
connect with them. And that's what's really important. I think that you do that extremely well. It's your voice and the way you, um, the, the, the caring, and, and you seek to understand and not to be understood. So you're not coming from a place that uh, I have all the knowledge and, I'm, and, and you're doing it all wrong. I wanna understand why you think and the way you feel so that I can help you and, and it comes across incredibly clear. And that's one of the reasons why I watch you every day. It's my hillbilly charm. I get to read you now. Okay, go ahead. See, I do this too. All right, go ahead. We did a show about Chris Watts and I invited Susan to be there. I took great note of some things that you do. So I'm going to be complimentary here about Thank this. Thank you. You play big, not long. I play big, not long. You play big, not long. And... I've written about this. A lot of people come on and they want to talk a lot. They fight for the mic. They want to be the center of attention. And then there are other people that come on and they're very comfortable about who they are and what they have to say. And they're not worried about how much time they talk or how many words they say but they're very confident that when they speak, it's going to be profound, it's going to land, I have something of importance to add to this conversation. And I know that. I'm very confident in that. I don't have to be anxious about it. And when you speak, you speak very clearly, you pay attention to the audience, you pick out several people in the audience and they're your barometer. Yes. And if you see them tracking, then you know, okay. <laughs> yes. If they get it, then they all get it. Yes. And you're very rhythmic in your communication. You'll speak for 30 or 45 seconds. And even if the thought's not complete, you stop for feedback, interjection, question, and then go on instead of filibustering for a long period of time, even if the thought's not finished in case somebody wants to insert something, and then you go on because you're looking for interaction, partnership, and exchange rather than being expositional and didactic. That's very true, and I'm not that person. I'm not one that yeah. has to be out there and be the center of attention. Yeah. And I can really connect with you on the level of when you're going to a house party. I'm not going to flit around the room and be the social yeah. butterfly. I really enjoy one-on-one -on -one connection, and I do when I even when I'm speaking and training. I pull out my energy sources, people I connect with, and yeah. those are help. Those are great for me because those are pacifiers. Like they, they're the safe places for me to go. Yeah. So when I hear people that filibuster and that all they're doing is wanting to be heard and they think that everything that comes out of their word is so profound, I tune an ear away from that. I think that this, there's something uh, that I think that is good about me is I'm very real. I don't have to fake it till I make it. I'm sitting here with Dr. Phil. I feel completely comfortable. I feel like we could sit and have a cup of coffee and be friends. Well, yeah. And that's the way I look at it. You know, one of my greatest trainers in public speaking is get out of the performance mode sit down and have a cup of coffee and have, you know, have a cup of coffee with friends. And that's what gets me to get beyond the fear. And I don't think about how I sound, how I'm presenting myself. I'm just going with my heart. And when I go with my heart and what I believe in, then everything falls into sync. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. And the fact that 
you are a two-way communicator makes whoever you're dealing with feel very engaged. Even the audience, which wasn't participating verbally, I watched their level of engagement with you today, and it was very high, very high level of engagement because you engaged with them. It has to be a conversation with me, whether it's nonverbal or verbal, I have to volley the ball back and forth. I got to play tennis. Yeah. And then the second thing (laughs) that I noticed is you are a very good listener because everything you said either complimented or built off of something others had said, but there was nothing repetitive. You didn't say what two people down here had said, but you might say, based on what somebody down here said, in addition to that, this or that, which means you're not just sitting there thinking about what you're going to say, you're listening to and participating in everything that's going on so you can edit and add to it instead of just sitting here thinking about what I'm going to say. Yeah. That's a really valuable skill when you're moving at a fast pace and on the fly like that. Instead of having to think about what you're going to say, you can take everything in that's going on around you and then add to it or operate on it and move forward in a very fluid way. Thank you. Which is not an easy thing to do. I have to do it a lot, so I know it's not easy to do. (laughs) Well, I look at people that are panels that everybody has something great to share, and they have their own expertise, and we can always learn from other people. Yeah. And we can always pull niblets from different people and learn from other people. When we stop doing that, we stop learning. We stop growing. Uh, I. That's just, I mean, that's just the way I am. That's the way I've always been. Like Steve today, I mean, he had probably a fraction of the formal education of a lot of the people up there, but so much wisdom from being a street cop, being in the trenches. And I thought his contribution to the panel today was invaluable. Absolutely. He's been in that room when they've made those confessions. He's been there when they have turned that corner. He's been there for the arrest. He's been on those house tours. He's also a very intelligent guy, but I mean, the street wisdom that he had, I thought was invaluable. Yes, I do too. In fact, I sat and had long talks with him afterwards, and I said, you've got to show me some of these techniques about how women can protect themselves. And he was showing me everything. He's really willing to share because he cares about it. Yeah. And it's really obvious that he cares about what he does. He's not there to be on show. He's there because he wants to help people. And one of the things that I love about when I'm training is when I know that I've got the aha moment is when I see their eyes light up. You know, when I look at the audience and I see them connecting and I see them nodding their heads and they're thinking about when something happened to them or what they can recall from in their past that you're speaking to me, that to me is what makes me wake up in the morning. That's what makes me want to do what I do knowing that what I do has impacted people. And that's one of the reasons why I have gone into the industry to help training our judges, our Department of Defense, our uh, Department of Children and Families, attorneys and mediators, because I think they make mistakes. They're making false judgments and quick calls on things, and they're not really reading the cues properly. So I feel a duty to teach them. 
In fact, I trained our federal court judges. I wasn't paid for it. I did it out of civic duty because I felt it was important for you guys to know how to read people accurately so that when you're out there, you'll be able to pick up in the clues when somebody is giving you a line of bull yeah. or they're not. And they're being truthful because we know that at 50% or best, most people at flipping a coin can read a deception. And that includes federal court judges. It includes a lot of our, our psychological community yeah. and it's very dangerous. And I, I feel a, 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 a need and I feel that my mission in life is to help train people to, that are in the position of making judgments about other people and that so they can do that accurately. That's what I feel that's important to me. Well, you must feel very fulfilled. You presented to like 7 million people so far today. And so. I didn't even shake. And I was only, the only shaking that I did is because it was a little cold in there. It was cold in there. Well, will you come back and do this again? I would love it. Thank, Thank you. you so much. If you would like to watch the video of this entire interview, please go to Dr. Phil's YouTube channel and subscribe. It's free, and you will find this interview and a whole lot more.